Welcome to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church in Donaldson, Arkansas. This is Elder Dan Sammons preaching in our regular Sunday morning service. I'm going to ask you to turn to Romans chapter 9. I'm going to start there today. I won't spend my whole time there, but we need to pick up a few observations from there to support the subject I want to set before you today. I'm aware that last Sunday Elder Phelan preached on predestination, and this morning I intend to preach on election. Now usually what you uh, hear people say is, we believe in election and predestination. And some might say, well it's out of order to preach on predestination before you preach on election. And it is out of order in terms of the way we mention them, but uh, both of them are true and both of them need to be affirmed. We have many new members in the church, young people while election and predestination may be old hat for people who have been in this church longer than I've been alive, it is nevertheless part of those pillars of truth that exist in the church that need to be regularly affirmed. And both election and predestination are broadly rejected in the wider world of Christianity. So it's important that we are clear about what is meant by predestination and election. And we're coming off an election week, are we not? So we all have ideas around the topic of election that are on our mind as a result of the events of this past week. But I think it's important to recognize that the election that is mentioned in the Word of God is very different from the common notion of election that we see in American politics. In the American political system, you have a situation where there's voting, and in that scenario, men choose, right? This is an area where if it's working properly, men are to choose who their leaders are going to be, and they do that by a vote. So it's in the hands of man, so to speak. Admittedly, it's a collective of votes that get counted and those sorts of things, but it's men making a choice about who's going to be in office in a particular office. In addition to that, it tends to be based on merit, right? That's typically how we view this idea. I'm going to look at the candidates and I'm going to pick the one that has the best merits for fulfilling this role. And you assess those merits maybe based on what your political values are and the things that that person supports. And you would make a selection based on who you think is the most meritorious or capable of fulfilling the office. It may also be in the American system, if we're not talking about it in a purest of senses, it may also be the result of graft or corruption that people are being elected, right? I mean, things don't always run perfectly, so you've got those things in the mix. And who gets selected for any particular office in this arrangement of election? It can vary with the political winds, Like there are people who vote one side of the political perspective in one election and then four years later they're voting for someone who's got completely the opposite position. So there's a variability in it. Even among people who have political convictions about things, they may choose one side or the other based on how things are going. Um, People who supported Joe Biden, for example, biggest Joe Biden supporter out there in the world, they might go to the polls the next time and say, well, I'm going to vote against him because my gas prices are too high, right? They may have all kinds of other concerns that make them like Joe Biden, but because the situation has changed, they may change their opinion about that. So you see in the American political system a lot of variables that are in play, and this is so commonly discussed in our society that we need to be sure that we don't project these ideas into our religion, This is our political system, our government, this is how it's set up, and yet 
The notion of spiritual election, the election of God's people unto eternal salvation, does not work this way. Okay, You have to disconnect the idea of God's election from the typical cultural notions that we have of election. So what's different about spiritual election? Well, God chooses. There's one vote, and that vote is God's. It is not submitted to your opinion whatsoever. Men have no opinion in the matter. God votes, and that's all there is to it. Now, that's pretty different, isn't it? Some person might say, well, that doesn't sound like election. That sounds like a dictatorship. Well, you're in a kingdom, are you not? And you got a king. The ideas of democracy that we carry in our public society, which I'm quite in favor of, do not apply in the kingdom of God when it comes to the election of those who will be saved. It is a vote, and there is one person that's allowed to vote, and that is God. It's His world, it's His kingdom, He is the king, and He makes that choice. It is based on His sovereign prerogative as God. He's God, He made this world, He can do with it as He sees fit, and He saw fit to elect a people to save out of fallen humanity. And that's His prerogative to do so. Already in these two concepts that I've laid before you out of the Bible, you've got religious orders under the domain of Christianity who say, I don't like that at all. I don't like this idea that God chooses. I think God's got to give every man a choice. God should let men choose. It should be more like our political elections. Men should be allowed to vote on whether or not they're going to heaven or hell. It doesn't work that way. You say, well, it doesn't sound fair. It's God's world. This is what His Word tells us. And I think, honestly, many of the issues that people have with the notion of election have to do with projecting silly ideas onto it and not accepting the plain testimony of the Bible. I will say this has been my experience. If you have a problem with election, the notion that God chose a people to save and He's going to save them, I would ask you, go to your Bible, look at every time the word elect or election, or choosing is invoked in the Bible, and just study those verses. I honestly believe this. Any sincere Christian who sits down and has an honest, dispassionate, and sober reading of the texts of the Bible that reference election is not going to come away with the idea that God has given every man a chance to make a decision whether or not he's going to heaven or hell, and God's up there going, I don't know who's going to end up being in there. I'm just waiting to see. It does not teach that at all. Now, I know a lot of Christian orders teach that. It's a popular notion, and it's popular because it feeds the carnal mind. Men want to think they have more control over things like this than they do. Uh, My dad once said to me, men always try to wedge some portion of man doing something into the domain of salvation. And if you look, that's really true in a lot of different Christian orders. They're trying to figure out a way to give man a little bit of control in the matter of who's going to heaven and who's going to hell. But the Bible does not speak that way. And when you see instances of men in the Bible making choices, making spiritual choices, you're not seeing the determinate act that made certain whether or not someone was going to heaven or hell. You're seeing an evidence of a preceding act that God had on their behalf whereby they would have a desire to want to choose God. So, 
God chooses. It's based on His sovereign prerogative as the Creator of the universe, the Lord of all things, the King of this kingdom. It is never corrupt or evil. There's no graft or corruption involved in this election. It is always just and fair and righteous. It never varies. Not at all. There's literally nothing anyone can do on this earth to either augment or diminish the number of people who are going to end up in glory. That's one of the unique things that we teach, and a lot of Christian orders do not teach that. God chose a people. He sent His Son to die for them. He regenerates all of them between conception and death, and every single one of them will live in glory because He is the Good Shepherd. He gives life to all of His sheep, and they can never perish. If He missed one, He would not be a Good Shepherd. A Good Shepherd would be one that keeps all of His sheep. The man has no part in this, and this is the part that is ultimately offensive to many. It's offensive to the carnal heart because we tend to think about things in terms of merit. But spiritual election does not work in that way. I made a post on Facebook this week that I said, every Christian should commit to believing the published election results. Now, that's a pretty controversial statement if you don't have some context around it. People might say, well, I don't know. I think there's been a lot of corruption in our modern elections. Well, I'm not talking about our political elections. I'm talking about the election that has been published in the Bible. That's the election we really ought to be focused on. Because no matter who wins the presidency or who becomes your governor or who wins the Senate, who's the Speaker of the House, at the end of the day, there's one election that matters. It had one vote cast. It was God. He cast it for His people because He loved them in Christ and they are accepted in the Beloved and that's all there is to it. That's the election. The results of which are published in the Word of God and every Christian ought to commit themselves to accepting those published results of that election. Okay? Now, I want to talk about this notion of divine prerogative. It's God's sovereign choice who will be saved. It's His choice and His doing. Romans 9, I'm going to start in about verse 10. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth, it was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger, for it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. That passage just completely obliterates the idea of free will for eternal salvation. It says it's not of him that willeth. People say, well, it's free will. No, it's not of him that willeth. You can call it free will or whatever you want to. You can put all kinds of names on it. Whatever it is, it's not of the will. You see that? And that's, that's an important attribute. That's why we say it's God who chooses, not man. People might say, well, I remember choosing to serve God. I don't doubt that for a moment. But we love Him because He first loved us, right? That's the peace. That's the peace that I believe the old Baptists lay hold of and other people struggle with. That loving of God of us beforehand 
is the cause of why any of us would ever love God, ever choose to serve God. So if you look back in your experience and you say, I remember this powerful time in my life where I chose to serve God. I don't deny that one bit. What I'm saying is you made that choice because God had done something to your heart. Otherwise, you would have never had the inclination to make that choice. Now, stepping back through this a little bit, I want to pull out some highlights from that passage I I just read. In verse 11, it said, For the children not yet being born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works but of him that calleth. That eliminates the idea that is so popular that election and predestination involves God looking down the tunnel of time to the things that you did. It says it's not of works. So he's not looking at your works. And by the way, God made this determination before any works were even done. Right? And it's according to election. It's according to his choice that these things came to pass. And it's before they had ever done any good or evil. That is very contrary to the religion taught by many around us today. But it's the clear testimony of the Bible. It's kind of jarring, I guess, if you haven't really encountered it. That would be a jarring testimony. And it's why a lot of Christian groups don't spend much time in Romans 9 because it's problematic for free will religion. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. That to me is, you know, it doesn't work the way you think it's going to. Typically, the younger serves the elder. That's kind of how it works out generally. But in this arrangement, it's pointing out it's not how you think it's going to work. See, in their society, the younger would have served the elder. In our society, election is people making a choice, and it's the people's will and all that sort of stuff. It doesn't work that way. It works the way God wants it to work. And in this arrangement, the elder is going to serve the younger. See? So you have to think about it differently than maybe the way you would project your typical cultural views of election onto the matter. Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. That's plain enough. What shall we say then? And this is the typical objection. People say, if that's the way it works, I've literally had people say this to my face. If that's the way it works, God is not fair. God is not righteous. God is unjust if He does not give everyone a chance for eternal salvation. This is the very objection Paul is dealing with because I'm certain that as Paul preached this, he probably had thousands of people say that very same thing to him. Such that when he wrote the Roman epistle, he's like, well, i got to bake in the answer into the epistle because it gets asked so often. Right? It's just unfair. Doesn't everybody have a chance? And what's his answer? His answer is what God said to Moses, which was a manifestation of his goodness. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. That's very plain. God's going to make the choice in this on who to have mercy on. It's his sovereign prerogative as God and as king over this kingdom to choose whom he will. That's why I've said... You know, other Baptists sometimes call themselves a free will Baptist church. And we might ought to call ourselves a he will Baptist church because that's what we believe. We believe he will do these things. He chose his people. He sent Christ to die. He sent the spirit to regenerate us. He will glorify us one day. He will deliver us out of the graves. We'll meet him in the air. That's all stuff he will do. It has nothing to do with what the free will will choose to do. Follow me? So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. That means it's not what you're willing to do or what you believe or what you do. That's what runneth designs. It designs the things you might do. Religion regularly serves up. Here's a bunch of things you can do to get into heaven. It's saying it's not about that. It's not about your willing choice or about the things you do religiously. 
It's about God showing mercy. Now, I don't deny that people have a will to do spiritual things. They had that because God gave it to them, not because they conjured it up and then asked God to save them and then God subsequently saved them. The fact that they had that inclination to begin with is an evidence that God has been working in their hearts. And that's the piece that I think many people get wrapped around the axle on. It's kind of hard to recognize maybe that you mean God was doing spiritual things to me before I ever had any sort of spiritual response. I think that's why the Bible uses the birth analogy. You know, none of us would say, well, I I threw my first baseball and that was the moment I was born or that was the moment I had life or the first time I said dada to my father. I remember being in his arms. I was 18 months old and, and I said this and that was that was when I became a son. We know that's not true. That's just an evidence of some preceding things that happened that you had nothing to do with. And it works precisely the same way in the spiritual realm. If you ever had a spiritual inclination, it was a spiritual inclination in spiritual life. It was not a prerequisite to spiritual life. It was an experience of your spiritual life. And that means your spiritual birth must have transpired at some point before that. You see that? That's the issue. So... That kind of sets it very clearly out there that this notion of election, the choice of a people to save, is God's sovereign prerogative in the matter. So why is it necessary? That's the next thing. And you kind of have to work through this if you're coming at it from the perspective of free will religion. Well, if you don't really understand the nature of the fall, then you won't understand the nature of of the cure that has to be proffered to fix that problem, right? It's not that the fall made man slightly less capable than he was. The fall made man utterly incapable. And for this, I want to look at Mark chapter 10. There's a good example here that it's good to keep in mind. This is the rich young ruler. And we all know this story, but there's a couple of observations we pull out of it. There came one running, this is verse 17, and kneeled to him and asked him, good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? He's trying to come up with the list, right? He's working on, you know, it said the previous verse said, it's not of him that willeth nor of him that runneth. He's kind of asking, what's the runneth part of it? What things do I need to do? What's my list, right? So what things must I do? What shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. Right off the bat, Jesus is pointing out, none of you are good. God's the only one that's good. So if there's going to be anybody doing anything good, you're going to be able to trace it back to God in some sense. But he goes on and says, Thou knowest the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and mother. Any of us going to raise our hand and say we haven't ever committed any of those things. Now this is a rich young ruler, he's young, um, but however old you think he is, if you think back to yourself at that age and what you know about your life up to that point, would you be able to say, yeah, I never committed any of those sins. You never dishonored your parents or, uh, you know, told a lie or maybe cheated somebody a little bit, defrauding them. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. Well, you have to have a hopelessly optimistic view of your own personal performance in righteousness to be able to have that testimony. Now, 
Bad religion will encourage people to give forth this type of testimony. Let me tell you what I mean. If you are in a form of Christianity, for example, that says you can achieve sinless perfection, and that's what proves that you're saved, is that you've achieved this level of sinless perfection in your life. Well, the stakes are pretty high if that's what you believe, because if you admit that you ever sin, it's basically saying, hey, I'm going to hell. I'm not even a Christian. So if you're going to have any sort of standing in that form of religion, you're going to have to build the delusion that you're actually towing the line and keeping the law and sinning not. This is a really dangerous headspace to get into because it gets people to thinking they have to start ignoring the sins that they commit or explaining them away. And bad religion can teach people to do this. You don't want to go around all your people who are part of your religious order and admit to sinning if you're in that because they're going to, well, you're not, you're just some heathen. You're, you're not even a real Christian. No, you have to get around them and you have to put on airs to try to convince everyone that you really are sinlessly perfect and that's how things are going. Pharisaism was guilty of this sort of thing. They definitely believed they were people who were keeping the law and that this was a requirement for eternal salvation. So it's very similar to what you find maybe in the holiness movement in our time. So verse 20, I'm going to just submit that the rich young ruler here just tells a lie. I mean, maybe the people who watched him, maybe people who were seeing this conversation, they say, well, I've never seen him do anything bad. He seems like a really great person. I mean, and, and it seems as though the disciples' reaction to this, they kind of affirm this like, they're saying, yeah, this, is a, this guy's pretty good. You know, I mean, I can't think of a better example. So maybe the public opinion was pretty high of this person. But we know that what he said here is not correct. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him. That ought to comfort you if you're a sinner out there. If you're a sinner that's ever said, I've tried to hide some of my sins. I've tried to appear more righteous than I am. I've tried to put on airs before other people and show them that I'm more religious and more spiritual than I really am or that I'm sinlessly perfect. That ought to give you some hope because the Lord loved this person even though they're standing right in front of Him lying to Him. Pretty astounding. Jesus beholding him, loved him, and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give it to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and take up the cross and follow me. Well, he's laid something before him. I think this is an instance where the Lord is saying, I, I know where some of your heart troubles lie. I know where they exist. And I'm going to drill right into this issue. He knew this person had great possessions and was pretty fond of them. And so here he is saying, I'll do anything, Lord. You just tell me what to do. And Jesus goes right into the matter that he knows he's going to be highly resistant to <laughs> and he's not going to do. And it's very problematic. Take up that cross and follow me. Get rid of all this stuff. You really want to be my disciple and, and uh, you say you want eternal life? What about doing this? In verse 22, and he was sad at that saying and went away grieved for he had great possessions. You know, I just don't want to, I don't want to give that up. Doesn't that tell you that the rich young ruler had some sort of preconceived notion of some kind of religious thing he could be told to do? And that if maybe if he could just check that box, he checked all the others. If he could just check that additional box and then get Jesus to say, well, now you've done the full list. 
You're going straight to heaven. It seemed as though that's what he was expecting. Something that he was going to be willing to do that he thought would be pretty easy to do. And Jesus put something in front of him that he was totally unwilling to do. (laughs) This is why God has to save people. Because that's how all of us are. God's got to do all the work here. If election was left up to us, let's say this was election. What's he choosing here, right? I mean, he's doing everything right, but then there's this one issue. He's like, yeah, I'm out on that. I'm out on that. I'll sell my car and my boat and my house and all my stuff. You kidding me? Yeah, I'm going to go away sad. Suddenly I'm not as religious as I once made myself out to be. And I think Jesus gives this example because he knows exactly where our hearts are And we've got those sorts of holdouts that would prevent us from ever being saved if that were the arrangement. Verse 23, And Jesus looked round about and saith unto His disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at His words. But Jesus answereth again and saith unto them, Children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? Here's a man who was trusting in riches more than in God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they were astonished out of measure, saying among themselves, who then can be saved? That question, who then can be saved, comes across as the disciples saying, well, everybody's seen this guy, right? I mean, this guy is, he is very religious. It's not as though they're sitting back going, yeah, that's the religious guy who's running around on his wife and getting drunk and all that. When they ask this question, who then can be saved? It seems as though they're saying, this person seems to be doing everything right. He's asked these questions and he's walked away from the deal. It's almost like they're saying, if this guy's not doing it right, who then can be saved? Who who could we find among us? It's like, it's as though they're saying, I wouldn't put myself ahead of this guy in terms of his religious practice. I mean, everybody regards this guy as doing the right thing. And this is why you have to have election. This is why election has to be there. And Jesus looking upon them saith, with men it is impossible. The reason you need election for eternal salvation is because it is impossible for men to extricate themselves from their situation. They can't do it. There's none good. If there's none good, would you, would you not say, well, I, choosing to follow God in my life is a good thing. Well, there's none good. And if there's none good, no one's going to choose that good thing, even if you said, well, that's, that good thing is what you have to do to get into heaven. Nobody's going to do that. You say, well, I've made that choice. I've chosen to follow Jesus. I'm trying to do that. Yes, I don't deny that. The only reason you ever did that is because He loved you first. He gave you spiritual life and gave you the inclination beforehand. You see, man in his natural state is never going to make that decision. It is impossible with him. And by the time he makes the decision to say, you know what, I'd like to follow Christ, he was already in a state of eternally saving grace. Otherwise, he would have had no such inclination. So many people are very hostile towards election. It's not fair. It doesn't give people choice. Well, here's the deal. The state of man after the fall was so wicked, so utterly destroyed in the sense of all spiritual capacities, that if you then step back from the fall and said, okay, 
Now the arrangement is whatever you choose. That arrangement, while it is touted as this very fair and open and inclusive idea, would result in eternal damnation for all of humanity. That's what free will religion, apart from the intervening grace of God, would result in. It's not this magnanimous thing that's fair to everyone in the sense that it gives more people an opportunity to be saved. It's not that at all. If that was the arrangement, everyone would end up in hell. That's why you need election. Because if anybody's going to be saved, it's going to be because God sees this and says, this situation is impossible with them, and yet I'm going to have sovereign mercy on them. I'm going to choose a people and have mercy upon them, and that's how people are going to be saved. The ironic thing of election is that it is vilified largely in Christianity today by people who I have no doubt are part of God's elect. They just don't understand this doctrine. An election is so fantastic and so merciful that it's going to land people who deny it in glory just as well as it does those who believe it. Just because you don't understand what your father is doing does not mean that you don't have a father and that that father doesn't love you. Maybe I've given this example before. I thought about this. If you're a child, a lot of times your parents will give you candy occasionally, you know. Here's a piece of candy. It happens at church. You know, here's a peppermint or whatever. And as a child, in your ignorance of, of the broader world, you might think, well, okay, my parents give me candy. My dad gives me candy on Sunday morning. Giving candy is something that nice people do to me. And, you know, that's just kind of how I think about it. Well, now you've got some stranger up in a playground, and he comes up to you, hey, do you want some candy? Now, the kid's idea of this is going to be to project something based on his lack of understanding of all the context involved. He might think, well, my dad gives me candy. He's nice. Nice people give me candy. Therefore, this person must be nice. So this must be a nice adult person, too. See, that's a huge mistake, is it not? That's why we tell kids, don't take candy from strangers, right? Now, That child's misunderstanding is dangerous to him in the here and now. It could put him in some bad situations. It doesn't mean that he doesn't have a father, though. You see what I'm saying? It doesn't undo that his father loves him and takes care of him. It just means that that child has a misunderstanding about the truth. And so it is with election as well. There are many who, because they've experienced something of the father's love toward them... They then think, well, he must love everyone in precisely the same way. And that is just not the case. That same misunderstanding can visit great distress into the lives of other people. So it's important that we recognize election is required for eternal salvation. Rather than vilifying election, everyone should be like, I'm so thankful for election because it's the only way anyone's ever getting into glory. God's election is how people are going to get to glory. You know, when I think about the idea of free will religion and and making much of what we do and too little of what God has done and what He's declared, it reminds me of this Isaiah 2.22 verse. Cease ye from man whose breath is in his nostrils, for wherein is he to be accounted of? Why do we think so much of man? Why are you thinking so much of man and man's decisions and things? He's just a creature He's like grass. He grows up for a season, then he's cut down and blown away. 
Why do we make so much of what decisions men make and so little of the sovereign prerogative of God? None would choose. That's affirmed in Psalm 14. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. By the way, everyone is conceived, comes into this world as a fool, as an unregenerate. The Lord regenerates them subsequently. This is speaking of the unregenerate man. He has no conception of God. He has no concern about it. He's like, ah, there's no God. I don't have any accountability. All that religion stuff is nonsense. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. You see, the Lord was familiar with His Bible as well. When He says there's none good, He's aware of the Psalms here. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. Well, here it is. Here's free will religion teed up for you. Just put humanity out there. No regenerating grace. This is the fallen pool of humanity out there. And God's going to look down here among them and see what He can find. Now, common religion will say, he looks down there and he's going to see, well, that one chose me and that one's going to choose me and this one's going to do good and that one's going to take communion and that one's going to, right? He's going to do this good work, that good work, and that's going to be the election. That's very commonly taught, very commonly taught in Christianity. But the Lord looked down from heaven upon his children men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. How many is that? That's all. They are all together become filthy. I mean, is that? That's all. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. That is the complete undoing of free will religion. God's looking down upon the pool of fallen humanity. He's saying, there's none here. There's none that doeth good. There's none that seek me. There's none that have any interest in it. So that's why Jesus said, with men, this is impossible. And that's why election is necessary if any of humanity is going to be saved. Because the condition that man fell into was utterly hopeless apart from the electing, saving mercy of God. See that? Well, as if that wasn't enough, and I know I'm coming up on time here. This precept was taught as a fundamental by Jesus. It's taught all through the Bible in various different ways, and time won't permit me to kind of go into all that. But let me give you some examples. It was taught as a fundamental. In other words, many times election is regarded, well, that's some kind of deep, dark, esoteric doctrine. You don't even get into that. You, first, you've got to get people to you know, come to Jesus, right? And then maybe two, three, four, ten years later... Uh, on a sidebar, you say, well, you know, there's this thing called election in the Bible. And well, we don't really get into it too much, but it's in there. But don't look into it too much. That's kind of the way it's treated. It's like it's some secret doctrine that's there hidden in the Bible. And you're not supposed to talk about it because it gets people upset. It is not regarded that way in the Bible. It's all through the Bible. It's done in types and shadows just through the selection of Israel as opposed to the Gentile nations. That's a picture of God's election of a people. But it was taught by Jesus. It was taught by Paul. It was taught by Peter. It was taught by John explicitly and by name, using the term election. And they don't relegate it to some, you know, B section below the fold on the back page kind of notion. Like we're mentioning it in the footnotes of the Bible. Many of the books actually start off with a reference to election. So it's not something that early Christians were avoiding or that they didn't know about. They all knew about it. They all knew about it, and it was all taught by these people. And so let's look at those quickly as we close. 
This is the Olivet Discourse. So this is one of the final sermons, the last discourse that the Lord gives publicly, I guess. And he says this. I'll just read this just to give you a sampling of how he's using the term. Verse 20, And except that the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh should be saved but for the elect's sake, whom He hath chosen. See, God chose a people and they're the elect, and there's something they're going to be saved from in this circumstance. He hath shortened the days. And then if any man shall say to you, Lo, here is Christ, or lo, He is there, believe him not, for false Christs and false prophets shall rise and shall show signs and wonders to seduce, if it were possible, even the elect. He's talking about the elect here. But take ye heed, behold, I have foretold you uh, all these things. And then further down in verse 27, he says, And then shall he send his angels and shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from the uttermost part of the earth to the uttermost part of heaven. This is Jesus in the Olivet Discourse. I mean, he's not shying away from election here. People in the audience are not, you know, like, well, I election's not true. It's free will religion. He's plainly teaching election here of the sort that was mentioned in Romans 9. Paul in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, Put on therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another, if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. He's talking to God's people in the church at Colossae. He's referring to them as the elect of God. You're among the people that God elected. And he's giving them some things to do. It's not that uh, when you deny free will religion, you're not denying that men are encouraged to go out and exercise their will to serve God. They are certainly, that certainly happens in the Bible. It's just that their free will choice does not determine whether they're going to heaven or not. You follow me? That's the distinction here. So Paul refers to them there. If you turn over a couple pages in the beginning of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 4, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. You see that? Paul's not shying away from it. This is, verse, uh, this is verse 4 of the letter to the church at Thessalonica. It's not buried way back in the, in the deep recesses of the Bible. It's in the opening statement here. And Christians were not receiving this in those assemblies and going, wait a minute, I, we need to stop on verse 4 here. He said we're part of the election? Wait a minute, I'm not sure salvation is a result of election. That sounds out of order. I thought we had free will going here, and that's how we got into heaven. This is plainly stated. It's stated so abundantly and so prominently and so early in these epistles that it's actually kind of silly to try to say election is not a Christian truth. It's something we should embrace. It clearly is. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. See, there's some evidences here that these people were elect. The gospel coming to them in power did not elect them. But their response to the gospel in having it come to them in power, and their response is saying, I believe that, I'm going to be baptized and join the church and follow the Lord as a disciple, that was a manifestation of their faith, and thus a manifestation of their regeneration, which was a manifestation that they are one of the elect of God. Because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. See, it is election 
that determines regeneration and then results in the cry of faith. Not the cry of faith that causes you to be born again, that then retroactively makes you elect. Follow that? Important to know. So, one more example. Titus 1-2. I like this one because it makes reference to the honesty of God, the truthfulness of God. Titus 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ according to the faith of God's elect. What? I thought elect... We're not saved by election. Elect, no. It's in the first verse, okay? We should accept this. It is a fundamental core truth of the faith. It's just repeatedly put very up front and center, not controversial people in the church. We're not saying, I'm not sure about this election notion. Not a dirty word, so to speak. And it kind of is in some aspects of Christianity today. The faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which is after godliness in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. Well, if it was promised before the world began to a people, that's a people God elected. God can't lie about it. He tells us about it in His Word. And the election is true. It has to be true because the state of man after the fall is such that that's the only way that anyone could ever possibly get saved is if God did the saving. Important truth. Well, I just preached through Peter, so I know I've read the Peter verses, and I'm going I'm to cut those out. Uh, John refers to the elect lady in the second epistle. So there's many examples of it. I would actually encourage you to, you know, either if you have a uh, concordance or you can go on the Internet and do this, just do a search on the word elect, election, elected, those terms, and go read the verses in the Bible that refer to that. And I think as you do that, you do that prayerfully and openly and honestly, what is the Bible teaching here? You're going to come to the conclusion that, yeah, God chose a people and He's going to save them. And that's how it works out. That's why David could refer to his salvation as being the result of an everlasting covenant that is ordered in all things and sure. Right? If God chose a people, but then he was unsure about whether or not he was going to save them by what was going to happen, what Christ did, and whether or not the Spirit was going to regenerate all of them, I submit that the covenant would have been not ordered in all things and it wouldn't have been sure. Right? For it to be ordered in all things and sure, all of those things have to be in agreement with one another. And so all those who are chosen... Christ died for them, and they're ultimately regenerated and delivered to glory. That's why it's ordered in all things, and that's why it's sure. So let's close on Psalm 65. Psalm 65 has a really great testimony in this respect that should help affirm us in the doctrine of election. It's stated really plainly here, maybe more plainly than it is in several other places in Scripture. And this psalm starts off with, Praise waiteth for thee, O God, in Zion. And unto thee shall the vow be performed. O thou that hearest prayer, unto thee shall all flesh come. Iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, thou shalt purge them away. Now look at verse 4. This is really it in a nutshell. Blessed is the man whom thou choosest. Who choosest? This is God choosing. Blessed is the man whom thou choosest and causest to approach unto thee that he may dwell in thy courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of thy house, even of thy holy temple. Well, that's kind of it in a nutshell. If you're in a situation where you say, you know what, I love the Lord. Maybe I thought I chose. I do remember choosing at one point. I remember choosing. It can't be election because I remember I chose to serve God. I completely affirm that choice. Because I don't doubt that it happened. 
But the psalmist says, Blessed is the man whom thou choosest and causest to approach unto thee. If you approached unto God by your choice, what happened beforehand? God chose you, caused you to approach unto Him. That's the regenerating sovereign grace of God. That's why election has to exist. It's not like it's optional. If anyone is going to be saved out of fallen humanity, the group of people that Christ said, with men it is impossible, they're going to have to be saved by what God did. That's why I say we're saved by He will and not by free will. Thank you for listening to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church. This has been Elder Dan Sammons, preaching in one of our regular meetings. Come and join us as we worship God in the simplicity of Christ every Sunday morning at 416 North Hall Street in Donaldson, Arkansas. At Harmony, we don't have many things you'll find in the popular churches of our day, but we do have a successful Savior. We invite you to come and see.